<laughs> I have a friend who was picking up his first grade son on picture day. When he arrived, the photographer was snapping pictures, snapping away, making small talk to put his subjects at ease. He asked one little girl, what are you going to be when you grow up? She just looked at him and said, tired and frustrated. <laughs> this girl clearly observed her parents and accepted for herself a bleak future in which she'll spend the majority of her life tired and frustrated, perhaps intermixed with flickering moments of joy. Perhaps you've experienced this in your life. Perhaps you experience it now. I think what God wants to teach us or remind us this morning through his word is this, that there is some time better than now. There is some time better than now. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. That's on page 809. If you've used one of the Bibles we provided for you in the chair pockets. We meet here our last big word for living, glorification. We've examined the two other tenses for salvation. The two other tenses for salvation. The past tense. The past tense, justification. We have been saved. What does this mean? It means the penalty of sin. God's righteous wrath. His judgment of sin. The penalty for sin has been removed. We've looked at the present tense of salvation, which is called sanctification. It's the idea that we are being saved. Becoming more like Christ. And in this... The power of sin is gradually being removed as we become more like him. And so this morning, finally, we look at this, this future tense of salvation. Glorification. We will be saved. And one day, the presence of sin will be totally removed from our world and from this body of death that we carry around all day long. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, glorification. So read with me if you would. We're going to start in verse 18 of Romans 18. Here's what Paul says to the Roman church. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
The hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that our bodies will one day be glorified as we enter the fullness of your glory. Lord, there is a lot to describe. There are a lot of just riches and treasures to describe when we talk about glorification. We won't be able to get to all of it this morning, but Lord, we pray through your word that we'll get what we need to see the most, Lord. And that you would be glorified as someday you wish to graciously glorify us in our, in our bodies. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There is some time better than now. Two proofs and a hope. Even if your present is good, right? Things are going well. But certainly, if it's not so good, there is some time better than the present. And Paul gives us two proofs of this truth. In this passage, Paul gives us two proofs of this truth and a hope. And this hope has potential to make the most excruciating now seem like a little pinprick in the scheme of things. So we're going to look at these things this morning. Two proofs and a hope. Proof number one that Paul gives us that there is some time better than now is expressed in verse 18. The sufferings of this present time. First of all, what does Paul mean when he talks of suffering? What is biblical suffering? I'm going to mention this first. First of all, it's not, it's not losing your job because you didn't perform well. It's nor is it tearing a muscle while you are lifting some heavy iron. All right, now, you may hurt from these things. We do hurt from these things, but it's not the kind of suffering to which Paul is referring here. But neither is suffering limited to being jailed and imprisoned for smuggling Bibles into China. All right, suffering is not limited to that. All right, we don't have to be a martyr to suffer for Jesus. All suffering endured on the path of obedience is suffering for Christ and with Christ. A wise pastor once shared this with me. All suffering endured on the path of obedience. If it's on the path of obedience that you experience suffering, that is suffering in the biblical sense. With Christ and for Christ. Receiving a cold shoulder from a boss because of the one time you shared with her just a little bit of your trying to rely on Jesus in your life. Maybe it's the attitude you get from a waiter when you try to be kind to him or even when you ask him about his day. It's enduring weariness or sickness due to a lack of sleep as you work on your marriage, right? Sometimes you have to lose sleep to love your spouse, right? Anyone here ever experienced this? All of these things, suffering on the path of obedience with Christ and forth Christ. The reason this is so important, the times of suffering help us recall that there is some time better than now. 
there is sometime better than now. Even those who suffer far more, far greater than any of us here, can identify their experience as suffering because they distinguish it from some time, even some moment, when they've experienced bliss. Right? That's how we know it's suffering. To identify suffering is to admit that there has been some time in which suffering has been absent. Some better time. In this way, suffering is a proof for us that there is some better time. What do we tend to do, though, when we suffer? What do we tend to do when we suffer? In the midst of suffering, we tend to look back in order to hope forward. We look back in order to hope forward. What do I mean by this? First of all, I'm a nostalgic person. I love tradition, old songs that remind me of times and things like this. I am this way. But even if you're not, we tend to look back at some moment of bliss, joy, relief, rest, or just flat out exhilaration so we can hope that that moment or something like it will once again return. And that kind of keeps us going. In fact, we do these weird things, kind of bizarre things, to recreate these moments. So we stand together and ask strangers to click the button of device that copies this moment into an image, a digital image, right? We ask musical bands who are done with their job for the night to come back on stage and do their job again. We call it an encore, right? We try to recreate these moments. There's a thing on iPods called Loop, So you can hear the same song over and over and over again, right? Because you love it. We try to relive moments with old friends on Facebook, which, by the way, never works out well. Here's a side note here, a side truth we need to learn. Uh, 15 to 20% of the people who befriended you have only befriended you to look at your profile once, all right, to see, because they're your friends from childhood, just to see if you've completely ruined your life or if you've actually made something of it. All right, they're looking at it one time. So if you go on there, if you're like, you know, man, I remember that great time we had together, and you're going to message them about it or put it on their wall, you're just going to embarrass yourself. All right, they're not going to respond back. So we try to recreate these moments. Adults like to watch movies about high school teenagers, right? Even as adults, we recreate to recreate this feeling of exhilaration of being in high school again, right? And that, there's that feeling... I don't know why. Mostly we hated high school. Sorry to the high schoolers. It's going to be great for you. Uh, But a number of you have recently watched movies about teenage vampire love. And some of you have even read the books. And by the way, if you tell me later that, well, technically the vampires are hundreds of years old and they're just in high school posing as high schoolers, well, you just made it worse, all right, for yourself by telling me this, right? (laughs) I'm just, I love you, so I'm telling you the truth. All right. But the problem is this, that in in recasting these hopes from old moments, it never works. All right. It never satisfies. Never satisfies. Why? Well, first of all, two reasons. As Billy Joel said, the good old days weren't always good. You try to recreate these old moments. We have reunions. We have we replay things, we redo things, and you realize, ah, oh, this wasn't as good as I kind of 
built it up in my mind. But secondly, our hearts aren't meant to be satisfied with these hopes. As C.S. Lewis once said, he puts this, puts this well, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, it is probable that you're not going to find a hope that will help you carry on in the past. You're going to find it in another world. That's proof number one, that there is a better time. Proof number two, there's a better time than now. We find in verses 22 and 23, groaning. Verse 22, read with me if you would. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, groaning, proof number two. I don't know what your range of groaning is. Most have a pretty wide range of groaning. All right? First of all, I want to give you my ranges of groaning. First of all, you have the hrumph of disappointment. All right, this is a low-pitched, short, under-the-breath groan. It's kind of like this, like, hmm, right? <laughs> kind of subtle, all right? Nothing to, you know, turn heads about. The next step up is what I like to call the pilot-on ah. I call it the pilot-on because things are already going well, and it's just piling on worse, all right? This is usually accompanied by an incredulous seriously. It goes something like this, like, uh, seriously? <laughs> right? All right, that's the next level of groaning. Here's a third level I'm going to give you. All right, I really thought hard about this. Had a lot of frustration this week, I guess. Um, it's the growl of frustration. This is just a steady, clear animal noise, all right? At this point, it's, uh, but that is nothing like our fourth and hopefully final level. And hopefully it ends before we climb the stairs, get on a building, and go postal on somebody. But this is the fourth level. It's the I'm going to lose it high-pitched groan, which is like goes something like this. Right? That's usually accompanied by clenched fists, right, and shaking, violent shaking. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> We've experienced these. You can relate. I can tell. Groaning. I love that, that God's word relates to life. What causes the faintest rump? <laughs> I won't do that again. What causes the faintest rump or the gruffest groan? Well, simply, we wish some reality other than the present. Right? Something else. Now, for me, this usually involves, it's different for everyone. For me, it usually involves some sort of mechanical failure. Um, it's a mechanical project. And granted, it's a very simple mechanism or mechanical project. Um, if not, I'm paying someone to do it or begging someone to do it. Um, but especially get frustrated and the groan comes out when I've fixed something or put something together before. Like, you know what I mean? I've done it before. This is something I've done. But this time around, it's got like five extra parts, which are all labeled in like Chinese numericals now. 
You know, like I, I can't even read it anymore. It's like Sanskrit when I read the directions. Like, what's going on? I've done this. And if I can't get it together in an appropriate amount of time, I, I, am, I am on to high-pitched groaning. All right? It's so frustrated. But groaning doesn't just happen with things we can do. It, it comes about also with things we're incapable of doing because we're human. Because we have this flesh. Things like producing, just producing out of nowhere, money to pay for your spouse to travel home or, or money to pay for the Christmas present your child really wants more than anything. It can be a body. This is the case for me. It's a body that you call upon to do all the things that your brain is telling it to do. Right? My body no longer does the things my brain is saying, do. <laughs> all right, it stops short of that, especially when I play basketball. Why do I have these groanings or longings unless a more perfect reality is somehow possible? This is proof number two. Groanings mean there's something better than the present reality. So having given two proofs, there's a better time than suffering, there's a better reality than groaning, Paul sets forth the hope, a hope of what is better. What is, in fact, better? And it's the hope, my friends, it's the hope of glorification. He describes this hope as the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 18. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 21. The adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Verse 23. And finally, verse 24. This hope. These vivid descriptions point us to glorification. But what is this hope? What, what is it really, what is it pointing to? How can we sort of condense it and explain it? Well, put it this way. Glorification, a definition, glorification is the final step of salvation in which Christ changes our bodies into his likeness. Changes our bodies into his likeness as we begin to dwell eternally with him. And man, it's going to be awesome. It is going to be awesome. But let's start unraveling this idea of glorification with verse 23. Look at that with me if you would. Verse 23, where Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we've been adopted as sons, right? Justification. We've been saved. Past tense. But the family resemblance won't be complete until we go to be with him. It won't be full until we go to be with him. So we wait. We wait for the redemption of this body that groans under tiredness and under frustration. The tiredness and frustration of sin. We wait for this redemption. Now, redemption, redemption reminds you that God isn't giving you something radically new, but restoring to you something perfectly old. I'm going to explain what I mean here. He isn't giving you something radically new, but restoring to you something perfectly old. Redemption, ex agora in the Greek. Now, agora if you live back in, in the time of Christ, time of Paul, it was the marketplace. It's where you bought stuff. 
You know? It's, it's the Grand Harbor. It's the, it's the uh, Foster's you know, Food Fair Strip down here. Right? It's all of that. It's the Agora. So exorgora means literally to buy, to buy back. And it evokes, in our minds usually, the idea of kidnapping, right? You, when it comes to a people, you buy them back, like a ransom. Similar to reconciliation, to renew, other biblical terms, to regenerate, in that God is giving us something back that we once possessed, but lost because of sin. You see that? He's giving us something back that we lost because of sin. What did you and I, and really it's our fellow human race, once have? The fullness of God's image. Right? Genesis 1.27. We were made in God's image. We still have it. But now it's corrupted because of sin. What really smart people call total depravity. All of who we are is affected by sin. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies, all affected by sin. And all of creation is, right? That's why it says, all of creation groans, right? Why do dogs bark at you? Other than the fact that they're trained to bark at you and they're like the Cayman home security system. They're naturally bark at us because it's their way of groaning. They're just basically saying, we long for the freedom of the children of God, right? That's what they're saying. All right, I have learned to interpret dog language. It's just, God's given me that gift. All, that is how pervasive those sin is in our lives. But a glorification, in a sense, we're going to be going backwards to God's perfect intent for us. Does that make sense? It's going to be restored to us. I want to look at a couple key passages that reinforce this idea and then explain why it's so important. He's, he's restoring to us something perfectly old. First, 1 Corinthians 15. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is, is just a great passage to meditate on, to think about glorification. We're going to read a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 37 through 38. Paul says this, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind, a seed of its own body. Paul's using a familiar agriculture analogy to say this body is a start. All right? Right? This is a bare kernel. It's like, it's like the piece of, you know, the grain of wheat. But it's going to grow and end up more beautiful and more complete. Does that make sense? Not only that... But it's unique to each kind of seed, its own body. All right? There's a uniqueness that starts with our earthly body and culminates in glory when our bodies are resurrected from the dead to be with Christ. In other words, do you see this? There's a continuation. It's not like you're just getting this whole new deal. All right? Like you're just this new person, like you're not Yvonne, you're not Kurt, you know, you're not Stefani anymore. Let's look at another passage that, that sort of emphasizes this as well. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4 says this, Paul says, 
For in this tent we groan. Here's this idea again of groan. You're going to see it twice in this passage. Groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed? What does he mean by this? A couple of things. Paul doesn't want his life to end for this, just this, for the sake of ending, without a replacement, right? Something greater. If he did, that w- it would be despair and ultimately lead to suicide. But second, he also means that not that we be trading one separate body for another, but that the beauty of God's image in each of us while here on earth would be added onto, it would be completed. In fact, the word in Koine Greek for perfect has a strong sense of completion. All right? To something to be completed. And for something to be completed, there has to be something to start with. So not new clothes, right? But further clothed. So for instance, this morning, I'm wearing my favorite white dress shirt. All right? This is Calvin Klein, yo. I love it. All right? And, and I especially love this shirt because I got it for $7 at the TJ Maxx clearance bin. All right, if you know what TJ Maxx is in the States, it's the store where you can get discounted items on brand name clothing. TJ Maxx is sponsoring our service, so that's why I'm doing this. But, but uh, you know, I love this shirt. I really do. It's a nice shirt, but it would be glorified and enhanced, right? It would be completed by an Armani suit. All right, if I had a nice Armani suit, all right, now, now, thank you. Now, I'm just saying, yeah, that's right, thank you, I appreciate that. Now, I'm just saying, if you're looking for any last-minute gift ideas for your pastor, all right, I'm a, I'm a 33 long, all right, 16 collar. You can listen to this later if you forget online. I'm just saying, all right. Christmas time's here. <laughs> I'll settle for a $5 gift certificate. It's fine. (laughs) Redemption. But get back to this old idea. I want to add something to it. Redemption reminds you that God isn't giving you something radically new, but restoring to you something perfectly old and something perfectly you. Perfectly old and perfectly you. Why is this so important? At glorification... You don't suddenly become a whole new person with a whole new and different personality. It's not as if we become, you know, this heavenly army of clones, right? Love you, Jesus. Love you, Jesus. That's not what happens at glorification. You don't become a Stepford wife, okay? Rather, you become more yourself than you ever were because his image is restored in you completely. Which means all the great 
gifts, talents, all your great personality traits are perfected, are completed, are glorified. Now my hope is that you've had hints of this here on earth. It happens when God puts you in position to do something and you walk away saying, that's me. Ever had that? That feeling, that thought? That is me. This is what I was born for. This is the real me, what I was born to do. Ever had that feeling? And you have it, even though you've never done or experienced anything like it. You know what I mean? You've never before done or experienced anything like it. And yet you know it's you. Intuitively, you know it's totally you, yet objectively, you've not done it or experienced it before. Friends, this is a little hint of glorification. I believe this is what heaven will be like. This experience repeated. Totally, purely, completely you. You completed, yet a wondrously new experience. Being in his presence. Perfected in his image. I think he gives us hints of that here on earth. So the time to come is better. The reality to come is better because the hope is better. My final question for you this morning Is it your hope? Is glorification your hope? I asked myself this question seriously this morning. Let's look at the last two verses in this passage. Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? Now this makes sense, right? You don't hope in something you currently see because it's right there in front of you. Then he says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now this last little phrase here, Paul says so matter-of-factly, we wait for it with patience. I think of that, I'm like, do I? Is Paul using this as kind of like a motivational tool? Like, we wait for it with patience. I know you will. I know you will. Right? No. It's not a motivational tool. Rather, there is a kind of savoring that accompanies an assured hope. There's a kind of savoring that accompanies an assured hope. And by the way, that provides a good litmus test for what is truly the object of our hope. If your hope is not sure, right, if it might be fleeting, if it might get away, I know that I don't enjoy waiting, right? I want to reach out and grab it before it gets away. And this is the source of many of our troubles, right? We're like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to go after this. But when you trust, it is coming. When you know it will be there, you savor the wait. You savor it. And this occurs a lot over Christmas holiday. If I'm honest, seeing the faces of our kids light up on Christmas morning... Man, singing Christmas carols with you guys on Christmas Eve. Laughing, sharing stories with my brother and his family who are coming in on island this coming Friday. These are things that make me smile as I wait. 
These are things that make me smile as I wait. But do I savor this wait? Do I savor the wait for the redemption of my body? Do I savor waiting for this glorious freedom? This glorious freedom of being in his presence and being changed. Do I really savor that? If not, do I even think about it occasionally? If the answer for you is no to both of those, I think what God is saying is to start dwelling on this glorious truth, meditating, start meditating on the promises that is on his word of, of a future reality of a better time. Because when you become sure of this hope and you savor this hope, you'll be able to risk loving more freely. You'll be able to risk living more joyously and you'll be able to persevere when tired and frustrated by this old body that we carry around. Let's pray. Lord, so much matters by thinking and meditating on glorification. These bodies one day changing in the presence of you. And it matters for the life we live now. We didn't get to talk about that much this morning. Ran out of time. But that old phrase that some people are so heavenly minded that they can't do any earthly good is a bunch of junk. The people who've done the most for Jesus, the most for Christianity, have thought deeply and profoundly about heaven, about being with you. Because it reminds them how short life is and the great hope that's to come and it allows them to risk great things for you. Because what does it matter if we fail? If we love and we're rejected, what does it matter when one day, soon, in a flash, in an instant, our bodies will be redeemed, they'll become more, they'll be completed and be like yours. God, use this reality in our lives for the way we live. Help us risk big things by faith and help us love radically because we know that even if things don't go well, we do them. And we know we'll experience rejection and pain and heartache. Very soon, we're going to get a new body and live in eternal bliss with you. We love you for it. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.